Oh, Father, there is good news. But it's so easy for it to be covered over by what we see around us or by what's inside us. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, in your power and authority, you would come and you would break the things that bind, that you would heal the places that are hurt, that you would awaken us to realities which we have not yet glimpsed and pour into us faith for them. We ask for these things, not because we deserve it, but because you're good. And we ask them through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Maybe seated. I want to invite you as you're being seated to picture in your mind someone who you would say like, ah, there's a leader. That person is a strong leader. You're probably thinking about someone who stands out from the crowd, who has a, a compelling vision, who can rally others to that vision, who can, who can make things happen when they need to happen, who has that charisma. Shelves and shelves of books have been written about that kind of leadership, both biographies of people who are and also like how-tos, how you can be. But this morning, I want to ask if that picture may be more temptation than template. A temptation both for those who count themselves leaders and a temptation for those who follow. See, this week we're returning to our text from last week that we did last week, Ephesians 5, 21 through 6, 9, what's commonly called the household code, where Paul lays out how the gospel was transforming life within a first century household in the Roman Empire. And as we said last week, we're going to take this passage in two parts. Last week, we talked about the reality of submission that runs all through this section. And if you missed that message, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it to get some context for what we're talking about today. Because it's really the foundation for everything we're saying today. As a brief review to get some of the big ideas out there, we talked about how submission is a freely chosen following another. We talked about how submission can actually be a gift that brings freedom. How in Ephesians 5.21, we are called to a mutual submission. Every one of us submitting to one another as an expression of submitting ultimately to Christ. We talked about how each and every one of us are invited into structures of submission as well. Relationships where our default posture is submission. And we talked about how if we are ultimately submitting to Christ through others... We have the prophetic power and the prophetic responsibility to call others out when they are leading us in ways that go against the character of God in Christ. Now, if you're like, man, that was a lot for one sermon. It was. That's why I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But that leads us into today. Because today we're talking about the flip side of submission. Most people would say the flip side of submission is authority or, or power. And we need to talk about that, and we will before the sermon's over. But what Paul is talking about in this passage is not just how to walk in positions of authority or power rightly. Remember, the foundation for this whole passage is that called a mutual submission in Ephesians 5.21. This is a great verse to memorize if you never have. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Foundationally, we are invited into a posture of receiving, of learning from anyone at any time, no matter where they are in the social hierarchy. That means submission is a posture that goes beyond power dynamics. And if we're all supposed to be receiving and learning from one another all the time, no matter where we are in the social hierarchy, that means we all have the opportunity to influence and shape the lives of anyone at any time. No position necessary. That means the flip side of submission isn't authority. It's something more like what we mean with the more general term, leadership. Here at IAC, we talk about spiritual leadership as intentionally influencing another for the sake of the kingdom. Leadership is intentionally influencing another for the sake of the kingdom. You don't have to have a position of authority to intentionally uh, influence someone towards kingdom realities. This is actually one of the hallmarks that you see all through the New Testament of what leadership looks like. Everybody can be an example to everybody else. Everybody can lead others into a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he's about. Right? Throughout the Gospels and the Epistles, you still have this positional authority of the 12 disciples, later the apostles, all Jewish men. Right? They're the positional leaders. But, but Gentiles are regularly lauded for their faith. Notorious sinners are the ones who actually get what Jesus is trying to do and respond with an appropriately overwhelming love. Women are the first witnesses to the resurrection. A deacon is the first martyr. In other words, the exemplars of the faith, the people who are told, like, become like this, are not limited to the positions of authority. They're each and every one of us. Pastor Chase, our our, our church planning apprentice, talked about this reality back when we were preaching in Ephesians 4. Because one of the dangers the church faces is this false belief that it's somebody else's job to do the real work. But in your friendships, and in your parenting, and in your grandparenting, and in your life group, and in your workplace, and on your block, you are called to lead out of reverence for Christ. You are called to intentionally influence others into the life of the kingdom. That is your calling, not mine. My calling, the call of the staff and the clergy fundamentally is to equip you for that work, to give you what you need to do what God has called you to do. That's why even our our leadership teams within IAC are often a mix of clergy and lay people, of of paid staff and volunteers, because we want everything we do within the church to be a down payment on that larger reality that all of us are leading together right where we are. Now, if we're called to lead, does that mean we all need to seek out positions of power and authority in the church? No. No. Does that mean we all need to be type A personalities who run the show, who always have to have the best ideas, who always have to be in control? Double no. In fact, that type of leadership, what we think of as like paradigmatic, is antithetical to the call of mutual submission. It doesn't go together because our foundational call is to listen and receive and respond to others as our default posture. No leadership ever overcomes that call. But in that receiving posture, we also find that we have something to release. 
Because if the Holy Spirit is in us, the goodness and glory of Christ is in us. And we should not be afraid to offer that gift wherever we are because God has promised to work through us in the lives of others wherever we are. It's, it's a beautiful vision, this positionless leadership. But it's not the whole story. Because positions of power and authority still exist. Right? The influence we're all called to becomes magnified often in positions of power and authority. Sometimes to alarming extents in alarming ways. We have all seen people use the influence given them in power and authority in so many harmful ways, often in the name of leadership. Some of us have seen it up close in abusive marriages, abusive parenting. We've definitely seen it on the news, government, business. And we've seen it in the church over and over and over again. None of us have escaped the fallout from those failures. All of us have been influenced by them in some way. And so it's easy to kind of go to a place of cynicism and, and distrust. To start asking questions deep down. Can we ever trust anyone in power and authority? Is, is power, positions of authority just inherently corrupting? Is it inevitable that those in these positions will do harm? Shouldn't we just like flatten out the structures and make it every person for themselves? But friends, what the gospel offers is not the abolition of authority. It's the redemption of authority. Because we live in a universe where authority is baked in. Authority is at the very foundation of reality. Since God is the creator of all that is, he has authority over it, right? He has authority uh, to make it, authority to judge it, and authority to put it back right again. In Genesis 1, he gives humans dominion. That's an authority word, right? Over the rest of creation. Throughout the scriptures, he sets apart judges and prophets and priests and kings to represent him to other human beings. Anarchism or a complete social individualism where we're each left to our own devices is not gospel. It is not good news. The good news is that authority exists and that God always uses his for our good. In the scriptures, God always uses his power, not for his own sake, but for ours. Pushing back chaos, fighting evil, fostering goodness, creating flourishing. Yes, there are times when he uses that authority to condemn, but the only thing he condemns is that which destroys and refuses to be redeemed because it protects the flourishing of the rest of creation. The news that God is king over the nations is good news in the Psalms. Over and over and over again, you see it. The news that the Father has sent his anointed king, his Messiah, is good news in the Gospels. His authority coming to bear on a situation is good news because his authority is always and only empowering the world he made to become what it was always meant to be. And the invitation 
in whatever places that we happen to have authority, whether that's in our families or or businesses or, or governments or schools or ministries or whatever. The invitation is to learn to use our authority like he uses his. To leverage whatever power we have for the sake of others. To put it as as simply as possible, to use our influence to love our neighbor as ourselves. Our power and authority can be leveraged into a leadership that still looks and feels like good news. It is possible. But in order to live into that, we need to be trained. We need to be shown how. We need to be apprenticed. This is the heart of what Paul is doing in his household code. In these instructions to people in three different positions of power and authority within a typical first century Roman extended family. And, And just for the sake of clarity and as kind of a spoiler alert... In each section, we're going to find two common ingredients for using whatever power and authority we have healthily, okay? First, the person in authority has to recognize the fundamental equality of themselves and those under their authority. Any difference in authority is a temporary, non-ultimate reality because we all are submitted to the one true king. And second... The person in authority has to recognize that any difference in power is actually meant to empower. See, in the kingdom, authority is not a zero-sum game. If it's used well, everyone's capability, everyone's empowering, everyone's authority rises, everyone's fulfillment grows. Okay, those are the two big themes, the two big ingredients. And we're going to walk through each of these sections in, in reverse order in the text looking for these themes. Okay, the first one is slave masters. As we talked about a little bit more in depth last week, slavery in first century Rome wasn't as bad as chattel slavery in America, but it was not good either. The power dynamic difference was severe, so severe that slaves were still considered property and slave masters had authority to execute runaway slaves. But notice what Paul tells the masters here. Chapter 6, verse 9. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. See, Paul plants this seed of revolutionary dignity and equality at the base of this unjust institution, saying, you both have a master, and he doesn't care who's who. That's principle number one. This this difference in power is temporary and it's not going to give you any advantage with God in the long run. But where's that other principle? When the slaves section, Paul tells the slaves to serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. Okay? Then he turns around and says in verse 9, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way fascinating turn of phrase. He's saying that even as the slaves are serving God by serving you, you should turn around and serve God by serving them. Your responsibilities to one another in mutual submission are the same even within this power dynamic. 
And as we said last week, this kind of teaching in a society where Christians had cultural power to change things uh, ended up inevitably tearing down the institution completely. But, but if we find ourselves in any situation of power, right, in our context, our broader society, governmental, economic, uh, especially where we have power over people's employment, we would do really well to remember that they are not here for us. We're here for each other. Even those who serve in a position of submission get served from the position of authority. As we press toward the same goal together, those in authority can serve by helping them become the fullness of who they were made to be. In other words, whatever power we have, it is simply a tool to empower and equip and serve and bring flourishing. Next up is parents. And parenting is a fascinating journey because eventually sons and daughters become brothers and sisters in the Lord. The authority inherent in parenting is, is it shifts over time and it's temporary in a lot of ways, but for a while, it's almost total. And in the Roman world, it was total, total. In the Roman world, actually, the father was considered the domestic leader and the one who dictated their children's education. Right? That's why it says fathers in the text. The idea that, that that kind of domestic role is women's work comes more from the Industrial Revolution than the scriptures. Because it was only in that period that work and home became separate realms that had to be divided among the spouses. In the Roman world, the father's power was absolute. For example, if he wanted to execute his kid for being rebellious, he could. In other non-Christian household codes of the era, there's basically nothing told to the parents. It's like, kids, obey. And now we're moving on. So the fact that anything here is written here at all is revolutionary. And what's written is really fascinating. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. We had a kid read this passage in the first service, and it was awesome. It was a great moment. Literally, do not provoke them to wrath or to anger. What Paul is getting at is that in our training and discipline of our kids, which is right and good, how the child experiences that training and discipline matters. There's a sensitivity to the child's experience that does not dictate whether instruction happens, but maybe dictates how it happens. Because the training and instruction that are supposed to be given aren't based just on what the parent wants or what makes the parents look good. We don't parent to make ourselves look better than our kids. We parent so that our kids will receive the instruction and become whole, full people alongside us as brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's what he's getting at in the next phrase. Instead... Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Do not exasperate your children. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. There's a lot going on in this phrase. At, at base level, it's saying like, take the time to teach and catechize your children about who God is. Teach them who made them and is remaking them and bringing them into fullness of life and teach them who is made and remaking you and bringing you into fullness of life. Teach them about your common king. Now, that is fundamentally the parent's responsibility, but the whole church comes alongside for that work. And we've got tons of resources, people and content resources at IC for, for how to do that. If you're struggling there, we want to come alongside and help. But there's another dimension to this. 
right? That second principle that power is used to empower. You could read this also in this way, bring them up in the Lord's training and instruction, i.e. in the way, in the manner that the Lord trains and instructs. Bring them up in the way that the Lord trains and instructs. Now remember, the Lord always, always uses His authority for empowerment and equipping and flourishing and building up. When we err, and we do, there is real discipline and real forgiveness. There is real correction, but also real empowerment, real gentleness, and real conviction. If God's parenting of us is the guide for our parenting, the point of parenting isn't making sure our kids never mess up. The point of parenting isn't giving them such standards they can never meet such that they just are driven to rebellion. The point of parenting is to accompany our children through their failures and then guide them into experiencing the good news of forgiveness, of repentance, of strength, to walk in a new way out of gratitude. Parenting that simply makes a law for them to follow will not empower them. It will exasperate them and ultimately destroy them just as the biblical law does, because we can't follow it. Parenting as God parents means parenting into redemption, not parenting so that they can pretend that they don't need redemption, or we can pretend that they don't need redemption. All right, now last we get to husbands. And as I expected, most of the questions that came out of last Sunday's sermon were from here, because everybody thinks slaves and masters is a structure of leadership that needed to crumble. Nobody thinks parents and children is a structure of leadership that needed to crumble. And husbands, wives, were kind of split. Now, there are definitely cultural reasons why this authority structure existed in the context. Husbands were often at least 15 years older than their wives, for example, so that age alone created this power dynamic. Uh, Paul also points to a symbolic reality. In chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, that's unique to Christian marriage. Marriage is meant to reflect the relationship that exists between Christ and his church in, in some mysterious way. The story of a marriage is meant to be a story that points back to the story of God and humanity. The question is, in what ways? This is where we're really tempted to go beyond what the Bible says. It's not hard to find people who will say that this authority structure means that husbands should make all the decisions, or that the husband's calling trumps the wife's sense of calling, or that the husband should have this type of calling and the wife should have this type of calling, or that the husband should have the vision for the family alone, or that all women should submit to all men because of what's written here. Friends, none of that is in the text. None of it. The Bible is saying there's an analogy here in marriage, but all analogies have limits. And if we trust Scripture to say that there is an analogy, we have to trust Scripture to show us the center of that analogy and the limits of that analogy. And where Paul goes as the center of the analogy is not where our modern discussions tend to go. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Now, I know that the submission texts are hard in our culture, but in Paul's culture, I can just about guarantee you, I would put some money on it, that there were husbands who heard that and walked out of the room. I bet there were husbands who did not come to Christ because of this. Because the idea that a husband would not only have affection for his wife, okay, fine, great, that's awesome, but that he would lay down his life for his wife. That the purpose of whatever power and authority and symbolic significance he had was to make sure his wife would have abundance and flourishing, that was nuts. The idea that the husband's authority was fundamentally a responsibility to own, not a right to claim, was crazy. Because a husband's leadership, according to Paul, is first and foremost, primarily having the responsibility to die first. Not being the first to, like, decide a thing, not being the first to instruct, but being the first to die for the sake of the other's goodness and glory. In these next verses, the husband's leadership role is to, uh, in a sense, show off the goodness and glory of the spouse. The language of cleansing her, presenting her as radiant, all that. That's all wedding day language. It's all language for what a bride would do on the wedding day. And in a wedding, who the flip is looking at the husband? (laughs) Nobody. Unless you're just curious if he cries. Like, that's the only reason you look at the husband. In the same way, husbands are supposed to live in such a way that the wife becomes as glorious as she was made to be. That the wife actually takes the center stage of focus. Because Paul is saying, whatever power difference is here, whatever authority difference is here, the unity that's present between is greater. Paul says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. See, we all take this me reflex into any relationship we go into. And he's saying that in marriage, particularly, there's a possibility for that to be swallowed up in a greater we. See, the wife does not exist for the sake of the husband. If anybody exists for anybody, the husband exists for the sake of the wife. And in the greater framework of mutual submission, they both end up existing for the sake of the other. For a married couple, the spouse is the first and foremost neighbor that Jesus is talking about when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I know that people struggle with like, well, what what would this even like look like practically? I know that because I got a ton of emails about it this week. But there's a, I, I love the heart behind that question, but there's a danger in that question. Because it tries to define things more specifically than the Bible defines them. There's no blueprint here, just postures towards one another. The husband is called to initiate sacrificial love. The wife is called to receive that sacrificial love and offer love back, which will then be received by the husband who then gives in sacrificial love and so on and so forth. Every relationship is going to have different ways of embodying that based on giftings, based on personalities. But when it gets moving, when this giving and receiving and giving back and receiving back, when this relational flywheel really gets going, it's not going to look like domination or oppression. It's going to look like mutually encouraging, empowering partnership. I've been in conversations between people who view marriage roles very differently who have said to one another, I can't tell from the outside how you view roles within marriage. Huzzah! 
If love is present, the structure is not the defining thing. The love within the structure is the defining thing. And the structure is only there as far as it helps love flow. Because here's the gospel reality. Here's what the redemption of authority looks like. Any relationship of leadership and submission, and we're all in them, uh, marriage, workplace, whatever, can be received as mutual gift if leadership is given as an act of self-sacrificial love. If authority and power are used to raise up others into who God has made them to be. Because again, in the kingdom, authority is not a zero-sum game. If I have more, you have less. When power and authority are used in sacrificial care and concern, it leads to empowering and equipping of the person under that authority so that they are empowered and equipped to give back in love. Like this rising tide of sacrificial love lifts all boats. What we need is not less leadership or less power and authority, better leadership by those in power and authority. What we need are powers and authorities that view their position as responsibility, not right. That are willing to be held accountable for the ways they use their power and who judge their leadership by the flourishing that comes out of it, not the status that they attain. That's the vision. That's the picture. That's what the gospel can do. But the reality is that all those in power fail. Each and every person in authority doesn't live up to this vision. Now I can say with deep confidence that at IAC, we in leadership talk about this vision. We seek to embody this vision. We seek to live into a vision of radical equality of dignity between every person in this room. We're, we're, we're seeking to steward power and authority for the good of those around us, not to our own benefit. We're, we're trying to die first. And we fail. I fail. And I know that I and we have failed you in ways that we're very aware of and ways that we're not. Because there's no church, there's no community safe from these kinds of failures. And I think in a sermon like this, we have to take a moment to say that we're sorry. And we ask your forgiveness And we want to continually be repenting and continually seeking to encourage one another and leading in the way of Christ. And when we fail at that, we want to know about it so that we can confess and repent in ways specific to your experience. So we want you, if you see something, to say something. We want to empower and equip you to call out those that are failing, even and especially those of us in positions of power here at IAC. It's why we make such a big deal about holistic safety training for all volunteers, et cetera, et cetera. We want you to say something. And we also know that not all those in power and authority in this world are even trying or even aware that there are those who may profess repentance, but you never see the changes. There are those who either never ask for forgiveness, or when they do, they expect there to be no consequences for their mistakes, no boundaries necessary. 
We know that there are bosses, parents, spouses, pastors who are unwilling or unable to lay down their lives for the sake of others. Now, if that is you, if you recognize yourself in that description of leadership, whatever the context, repent. Because you are hurting people. And you are in great peril before the good and kind king. Ephesians 6, 9, again, there is one who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with them. But if you find yourself directly under that kind of authority, or have realized that you've been under that kind of authority in the past, hear us that we want to help in any way we can. I want to encourage you to tell a staff member about what's happening or what happened. All their emails are on the back of the bulletin. We're available in prayer in the courtyard. You know where to find us. Please let us know how we can fight for you and with you against that oppression. How we can help you leave those abusive situations if that is what you need. And how we can walk together into healing. Because that healing is what our God desires. Yes, he is a God of absolute power, and that can be scary, especially when we've seen power used wrongly. But he wields that power, church, in gentleness and kindness. What did Isaiah say? A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. He seeks your good. He understands your value and worth because he gave you your value and worth and he will stop at nothing to rescue you from all that oppresses. Yes, he's coming for the sin in your heart. He's coming for the evil powers which harass and accuse you and he is also coming for those earthly powers which abuse and will not bow the knee to him. He's coming for all of it. Because that is what good leadership should be all about. That is what power and authority are meant to be used for. Wholeness, healing, abundance, equipping, empowerment. If you want to like, see real leadership, don't look at some impressive person out in front. Look at the effects of that leadership on those around them. Don't focus on a person being impressive. Picture a community being made whole. May we become that kind of community as we receive the leadership of our good and gentle King. Let's pray. Father, there is so much goodness and glory here. But that is at least matched and, and even probably feels like overwhelmed by the pain and the suffering. Jesus, in your power and authority, would you come gently and kindly and do a healing work that we cannot imagine would be possible? You reign over all things, including the broken places. And we ask, we beg, 
that you would come and heal. May we receive your goodness in deeper places than we even know that we need. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.